Welcome to the Society of Construction Law Australia podcast, the podcast where we look at legal and technical issues facing the Australian construction industry. My name's Melissa Yeo, and I'm chair of the Society's Communications Subcommittee. The Society is pleased to bring you a recording of the keynote address delivered by Dr. Natalie Galea at the Society's recent conference in Hobart. That address, entitled, I would like to see my son more than I see my site manager, tackling human rights risks in the Australian construction sector, provides valuable insight into the health and well-being of those working in the Australian construction industry and what we can do to ensure we improve the status quo. We hope you enjoy this podcast. For more information about the Society's various initiatives, please visit our website, scl.org.au. And if you're not already a member of SOCLA, you can sign up there too. Thanks again for joining us. I'd like to start by recognising the traditional owners of the land that we stand uh, today or sit today and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And if I may, I would like to throw my support behind the Uluru Statement from the Heart and say that I think it is a very generous gift being offered to Australians. Thank you for the invitation to speak to you today about human rights risks in the Australian construction sector. Infrastructure Australia has projected that by next year, the construction sector will be short 100,000 workers necessary to deliver the nation's unprecedented pipeline of infrastructure projects. The Business Council of Australia has cautioned that by next year, one in three advertised positions in the sector will go unfilled. And a parliamentary committee on infrastructure, transport and cities handed down a report in March that was scathing of the government's procurement practices, which it says has diminished Australia's ability to deliver fit-for-purpose infrastructure and a sustainable sector. The construction sector is not an employer of choice. The culture and work practices of the industry are a barrier to people entering the workforce and staying there. In recent years, the Australian government has drawn businesses' attention to modern slavery practices in the construction supply chain. Today, I'm going to focus on the last pair of hands in that chain, our construction workers, those who build here in Australia. This is not to overlook the human rights risks of Australian companies operating overseas. As was said before, I managed construction projects in the Middle East for an Australian contractor for many years. One that recently made the news for its treatment of workers and subcontractor workers. We need to stay vigilant to these rights abuses as risks too. But often when we think of human rights, we think that they're rights denied to people overseas not here in Australia. My research in the area of gender equality and worker wellbeing, which I'll detail today, finds that there are human rights risks in the Australian construction sector, right under our noses. 10 years ago, I stepped off a construction site in Dubai and headed back to Australia to make sense of my construction career. I come from a subcontracting family, and I'll acknowledge here my mother, who's with me, who was one half of that business. I worked in the building game for 15 years internationally in the, and in the Middle East, in Australia, 
And most of my career was spent on site working for contractors. As was noted, construction was my second career. My first was as an Olympic athlete. I worked hard in my construction career and I enjoyed construction work, but unlike judo where the rules of the game were crystal clear and I knew exactly what I needed to do to reach the medal podium, in construction I was often left scratching my head and asking why wasn't my career progressing? Why was I always the only woman in the room? And why hadn't the gender composition of the construction sector changed in the 15 years of wearing steel caps. So I embarked on my third career as a researcher to unpack what was preventing the recruitment, progression and retention of female construction professionals like myself and determine how to fix it. I found that the rules in construction, unlike judo, are gendered and complex and they have different implications on women and men's careers. I came to this finding after spending three years in the field studying two large T1 Australian contractors. My research builds on the research of others, decades of research on this very topic. Sadly, over these decades, the gender composition of the construction sector has remained the same. The construction sector is the most male-dominated sector in Australia, despite being the third largest employer. And men dominate leadership, management and the workforce. Women in construction are generally found in junior, part-time and support roles. And alarmingly, women are found to leave the sector 39% faster than their male colleagues. The property sector and the building sector have been slow to address the systemic structural problems that produced construction's gender equity problem. Worse still, my research found a culture of denial and indifference amongst leaders, most of whom are men. And I found that business leaders and managers had a varied understanding, readiness and ownership of gender equality. And despite project leaders and line managers in construction playing a central role in the careers of employees, there was a reluctance to take responsibility for gender equality initiatives, undermining their effectiveness. I found that there was a perception that the work practices and norms adhered to in construction were perceived as gender neutral. And worse still, moves to address gender equality in construction firms were met with backlash and resistance. At every stage, for women in construction, every career stage for women in construction, different practices operate to undermine gender equality. And across a construction career, different practices had a cumulative effect that maintains men's overrepresentation and powerfulness. It was a sobering study. And if I drill down across the different career stages, in recruitment, informal networks influenced formal recruitment processes. Construction companies compounded this by focusing on finding candidates from traditional narrow educational pipeline and who they perceived as a good culture fit for their business. There was little reflection that this practice was limiting the pool of construction of candidates or often discriminating against prospective female talent. Internal recruitment onto projects 
was also largely informal, routinely operating through a practice of male-to-male sponsorship. In other words, senior male leaders picking their teams and taking them with them from one site to another. And like recruitment in relation to career progression, a lack of transparency around progression and promotion practices strengthen the need for employees to form strategic alliances with senior leaders who were predominantly men. These strategic alliances were frequently closed to women. We found that while men's capabilities as construction professionals were assumed, women's capabilities were constantly challenged and questioned. Women needed to demonstrate that they were better, not equal, to men. And actions to address gender equality were viewed by men as providing women with an unfair advantage. Career progression, we found, was highly dependent on proving that you could deliver projects successfully. The larger the project, the better. In other words, we found men and women were given unequal access to opportunities, visibility and skill development impacting women's career progression. The other big question we asked was why women left the construction sector. We found three key factors. Firstly, parental leave was primarily seen as an issue for women only and was a major barrier to equality. Despite formal parental leave policies being in place, individual women had to strategize, negotiate and their departure, return and career survival. On project sites, parental leave was often viewed as a resource cost with little recognition of the cost on women's pay equity or career progression. And I will say that some things have changed in this area and I'm pleased to say that I am really seeing a change um, amongst construction companies almost competing to um, enhance their parental leave entitlements now. But things needed to change. In the two companies I studied, one company told me that they lost 50% of their female workers or primary carers at the point of parental leave. The other company was unaware of their parental leave attrition rate and I could not find a woman who had returned to their construction division from parental leave. The second reason women leave construction careers is due to exclusionary nature of the industry. When I started on site almost 30 years ago, my first job was to strip the site sheds of pornography plastered on the walls. When I went back to site to undertake this research in 2015, things had improved. Although one young woman interviewed said, if you can't handle a penis drawn on a wall, well, then construction might not be for you. A tolerance of sexism in construction, sexist comments, sexist graffiti, presumptions that women will do the administrative work and other practices frustrated and wore women down. A kind of death by a thousand paper cuts. This tolerance of sexism operates to remind women subtly and overtly of their gender and difference. And we found that women in construction only tend to report criminal acts and suffer in silence in relation to illegal acts of discrimination and harassment. Two years ago, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, Kate Jenkins, passed down a historic report on sexual harassment in the workplace known as the Respect at Work Report. 
In this report, she details the Commission's 2018 national survey that showed in, in the construction sector the proportion of harassers who were male was slightly higher than in other industries overall. The construction industry also has higher numbers of harassers per incident compared to other industries. If you haven't read the Kate Jenkins report, I suggest you do. It reinforces what we found, that gender equality is a safety risk and a human rights risk in construction that needs to be addressed by companies and can be done so through procurement processes. And I'll talk more to that later. The third reason we found that women left the construction sector was due to long-standing work practices. We found that employees' value was demonstrated through their adherence to rigid work practices that included long, irregular work hours, 55 to 80 hours per week. The ramped up towards the end of the project with Saturday work the norm and Sunday work becoming the norm. We observed that holding these long practices in place was a practice of presenteeism and total availability. There was little accommodation for social or caring roles outside of construction. And as a result, women who carry the greatest caring responsibilities in our society were often left to choose between a career in construction or a family. Much of my field work was conducted with a male colleague. We shadowed construction workers for a day at a time and interviewed them. And while we set out to study women and women's experiences in construction, we ended up spending a lot of time talking to men about the issues they faced. We saw very clearly and had described to us the prevalence and enforcement of hyper-masculine behaviours, command and control leadership, aggressive dominating behaviour, and the ability to show vulnerability or be anything but tough. Hypermasculine practices and behaviours in construction, coupled with rigid work practices, long irregular work hours, presenteeism and total availability, have real and profound effects on men's lives. Men we shadowed and interviewed on site told us about their marriage breakdowns and relationship issues, substance use, and the struggle to be a good father while expecting to travel long distances to work and work longer hours on site. And I spent a day, one of my first days actually, when I was shadowing workers, shadowing a site manager, a man in his mid-50s. By Smoko, we left the site to grab a coffee and he told me as we were getting that coffee that he, every morning on his way into work, he'd been suffering from panic attacks. He'd also said that while he drinks, he's just taken up smoking again. But he was thankful, extremely thankful, that he was still married, as he had witnessed the breakdown of marriages amongst many of his peers. And one young foreman I interviewed told me that in the eight years he'd worked in the construction sector in New South Wales and Queensland, on every construction site he'd worked on, at least one person, sometimes more than one, had taken their own life. On the job where I met this foreman, there had already been a suicide of a construction worker a few weeks earlier. Not that many workers knew this, as it was largely undiscussed. The problem of suicide was hidden from view. 
On another site, I interviewed a commercial manager who told me that there had been two suicides on their site in recent fortnight. And the directive was to not allow the subcontractors to put forth a delay claim because of the death of their worker. When it comes to the effect of construction work on men's health and wellbeing, we observed a blanket of silence. What we observed on site is thoroughly documented in the academic literature. An extensive body of research has found that compared to the general population or workers in other industries, construction workers have higher rates of psychological distress, burnout, sleep problems, anxiety, substance abuse and physical injury. Research, important research by mates in construction, tell us that every second day a construction worker takes their own life. A construction worker is six times more likely to die by suicide than die from a workplace accident. Now, the factors contributing to mental ill health and suicide amongst construction workers are undeniably multifaceted and complex. However, work conditions and the industry culture have been identified amongst them. In the same vein, work conditions and culture have been identified as a barrier to women's participation in the construction careers. Long work hours spill into family and personal time and lead to high levels of work-family conflict and in some cases, relationship breakdowns. And as with gender equality, construction companies have applied a variety of responses to address, address worker wellbeing. Most of these responses remain focused on the individual. Rather than attempting to make structural changes to work practices, for instance, through enterprise bargaining processes with unions and large contractors and as a directive from clients. Changes to workplace structure and conditions, including work hours, appear to influence the health and wellbeing of workers. Research from our sector and others shows that extended breaks between working weeks is important for work-life satisfaction. Shorter work hours or a five-day week have also shown significant impact on workers. Thus, the key recommendation from our gender equality study was to increase the number of women, the sector must be willing to challenge the working conditions of men. This brings me to a research I launched this week. At the beginning of 2020 BC, before COVID, when smoke filled the air from the black summer bushfires in Sydney, myself and a team of researchers from UNSW Sydney undertook research commissioned by Roberts Co, a boutique tier one contractor and the New South Wales government agency, Health Infrastructure New South Wales. We began to investigate whether removing weekend work on construction sites might lead to a healthier, safer and socially sustainable construction sector. At the commencement of the study, we were on site at Concord Hospital, cooking bacon and egg rolls and recruiting workers to participate in the survey and interviews for this study. At one end of the table were some older workers. One of them told me that the young guys in his crew they didn't want to work a five-day work week. They want to earn overtime so they can save for a mortgage and pay it off fast, he said. Okay, I thought. So I introduced myself to a younger colleague 
to his younger colleagues down the other end of the table and asked them, how are they finding the five-day work week on site? One of them quickly responded, it's amazing. I actually get to take my daughters to ballet on a Saturday and watch them. Finding an enthusiastic ballet dad on a building site was not what I was expecting. And it definitely wasn't what some of his colleagues were expecting either. But that's the beauty of research. We can test our theories and find out if the evidence supports them and make better decisions. In the construction sector, we have a lot of long-held practices and norms. We do many things just because that's how they've always been done. One of these is working days. Monday to Saturday work and increasingly Monday to Sunday work has become an entrenched practice in the construction se sector. Many people believe or assume it's the only way to finish a project on time and on budget. Project 5, a weekend for every worker, set out to test whether that is in fact true. We set out to test whether a five-day work week with no work on weekends improved the health and well-being of construction workers and their families, and whether this project delivery model was economically viable. The five-day work week in Australian construction was studied more than a decade ago. We needed more contemporary research. Project 5 is also the first study to include the effects of construction work practices on the wellbeing of construction workers next of kin, their intimate partners, and I'll come back to that later. So what did we find? Most workers, 75%, preferred a five-day work week over a six or seven-day work week. And on the five-day work week sites, most workers, 78%, reported improvements in work-life balance. There was in an increasing trend in worker quality of life and there was an increasing trend in workers' mental health. And there was a decreasing trend in injuries of workers. There was no increase in variable costs of delivering the project. The results were positive, but it's important to note that COVID-19 did disrupt both the recruitment of study participants and the data collection. And due to lockdown in Sydney, it wasn't possible to perform repeat surveys with the same workers. For this reason, we weren't able to definitively say that a shorter working week improved mental health outcomes for, of workers. We are also unable to provide the comprehensive cost-benefit analysis we hope to produce. However, what research uncovered about wellbeing on the five-day work week sites during a hugely uncertain and stressful time for everyone is insightful. The project team and subcontractors observed greater productivity during Project 5 because workers were motivated to complete work by Friday and enjoy their two-day weekend. The workers reported that the site was better organised and more efficient. More disciplined project planning for the five-day work week meant tasks were not left to chance all the weekend. And this had a flow-on effect to the workforce cohesion. Workers said they felt happier and less stressed, and they noticed the whole site environment became friendlier and less aggressive. And this is important if the sector is focused on improving construction culture to attract and maintain 
workers, especially young people and women. One of the obvious effects of having a full weekend was that workers felt, felt less fatigued and less likely to make mistakes at work. And besides rising job satisfaction, they also experienced increased wellbeing outside of work. The workers reported that their relationship with their partner improved as they were more relaxed and more available to participate in family life. Significantly for many workers, this was the first time they were able to be there for their children's weekend activities, like Saturday morning sport. And workers really valued being present in their children's lives and the five-day work week gave them this quality time. What really blew my mind about this study was the impact of the five-day work week on partners of construction workers. I knew that the sector was unkind to workers, but I had a less of an understanding of what it was like for their families. Women cried when they spoke about their partners being constantly irritable and never around for social occasions. By the time Saturday night or Sunday came around, their partners were too exhausted to do anything. One woman with children spoke about operating like a single parent because her partner was never available for school pickups, award days, or Saturday sport. She had to be everywhere. At the end of the day, work practices in construction are straining family relationships. And there's a hidden economic cost too. Women spoke about turning down work because they couldn't depend on their partners being able to care for children if they took more hours or took a promotion at work. The five-day work week was a game changer for workers' partners. Now, I'd like to come back now to construction sector norms. There are plenty of people in the sector who are skeptical about the five-day work week. And I want to address some of the common arguments now. First is the idea that more hours means more productivity. In project five, the sites with a shorter working week were delivered on time and on budget. In terms of cost, this pilot study of a five-day work week added 1% to the contract sum. The increase in costs was associated with time related to preliminary costs only. In terms of time, the five-day work week added approximately 12 weeks to Roberts Co's theoretical six-week program. And interestingly, the delivery of the five-day work week was faster than one of the alternate tenderers' six-day week program. There is an untested assumption that the six-day week projects deliver a consistent time, cost and safety performance. Anecdotally, many in the industry know this isn't the case. Another common criticism is that the five-day work week would only be popular with workers who have children. In fact, the research found it was popular with all demographics. Single workers appreciated more weekend hours to exercise, socialise, rest and spend quality time with their loved ones. And coincidentally, during the study, the five-day workweek was adopted in the CFMEU's EBA with Roberts Co and other contractors. 
One anecdote I heard was that subcontractors were not supportive of the five-day workweek model. On Project 5, we didn't find this to be the case. Subcontractors interviewed told us that workers, particularly young workers, got on board and were eager to work on this site. Some workers even requested to move onto the five-day workweek sites. Subcontractors found their teams to be happier, more productive and safer working five days. Subcontractors admitted that the cost of Saturday overtime was not worth what was achieved on Saturdays when they compared it to the five-day week. And compared to a six-day program, the five-day week had a cost-benefit for subcontractors. And while the central intervention was a five-day work week, across Robert Coe's sites, they also introduced complementary interventions. Some of these included changes in contract conditions between Robert Coe, Robert's Co and the subcontractors, effectively reducing Robert's Co's sanctioning powers and paying subcontractors on the same day each month. Improved facilities for workers such as breastfeeding rooms, targeted mental health first aid training and safety training, and signage at the front of their sites that read, thank you to our subcontractors and stakeholders, we can't build without you, and then named every subcontractor. Roberts Co, the contractor, was not the only party doing things differently. Health Infrastructure New South Wales called for and prioritised wellbeing and innovation in their tender analysis of the Concord Hospital redevelopment. This enabled Roberts Co to put forward an alternative five-day week program. Piloting and testing the five-day week has sparked a discussion with government and industry about alternative procurement and project delivery models. It recognises that procurement and the pre-construction phase has an influence on the productivity on site and on workers' health. If we want action on gender equality in construction, I think procurement is a critical lever for change and it's time to put gender on the tender. From our study, we made recommendations for governments, for clients, for researchers, and of course, for the construction sector. Today, I'd like to focus on the recommendations for clients and the sector. Clients, government and private, must pay for what it takes to deliver a project without harming the health and wellbeing of construction workers and their families. And I'm pleased to say that as of Monday, Health Infrastructure New South Wales will continue to take the lead on this and prioritise the health and wellbeing of workers above all. Project 5 has demonstrated the success of a five-day work week. So if clients can't provide a five-day work week, they should outline the case for a six-day program and how they will mitigate the impact on workers' health. It's time for our industry to prioritise health as much as safety. And companies must be brave enough to change working hours so that on-time delivery does not cost workers their wellbeing. It shouldn't have to pass the economic test for leaders to decide it's the right thing to do. And to return to my opening point about the sector's workforce crisis, this change is critical for the future of our sector because until working hours change, we won't get women or men to stick around in construction jobs. My research has found that the way we treat people working in the construction sector is unsustainable. Violation of human rights runs counter to the social sustainability 
and performance of our construction sector. Fortunately, momentum for change is building in our sector. And before I leave you today, I wanted to introduce you to three initiatives that are striving to improve the construction worker welfare. The first is the Green Building Council of Australia, who has led the world by expanding its Green Star rating tool to include people credits. They have mandated the requirement of female amenities on construction sites and the provision of female PPE. The contractor must also implement policies to address issues of discrimination, racism and bullying on site. Led by the Australian Contractors Association, the New South Wales and Victorian governments and industry have developed a construction industry culture task force. This is the second initiative. A culture standard focused on worker health, work hours and diversity starting with gender is currently being put into action. And I'd like to give a shout out to Gabriel Trainer, AO and John Davies from ACA who have been instrumental in leading this change. Earlier this week, Gabriel asked a room of construction leaders, would you be happy for your 14-year-old son or daughter to start a job on a construction site tomorrow? I think few of those leaders would. And finally, a few years back in Lund, Sweden, I was part of an international coalition of human rights organisations that founded Dignity by Design, a framework for human rights in the built environment. Our coalition recognises that problems we face on construction sites, like gender equality and worker wellbeing, can be influenced and addressed by actors earlier on in the built environment life cycle. By clients, by investors, by landowners, by designers, by lawyers influencing clients, investors and contractors. The decision that you make has a flow on effect to the risk profile of the construction sector. The decisions that you make have a significant impact on the lives of workers on construction sites and their families. I invite you to learn more about the work that's underway and consider what you can do to be part of that change. Because every player in the sector has a role in upholding the rights of the last pair of hands in the chain, our construction workers. I'd like to thank you for the opportunity to speak today to you and for the kindness, particularly that the directors have shown myself and my mum, Gail. And I'd like to close by showing you a video of some of the Project 5 participants and what they had to say about working a five-day work week. Thank you. I'm a scaffolder for BKH. I've been in the construction industry for about 10 years. My name is Mujda Shikiri. I'm a project engineer at Roberts Co. I've been working in the construction industry for about six years. Justin Miller, I work for Freedom Industries. So I've been working in the construction industry for 20 years. Project 5 is to ensure that we are working with families and workers and the community to get a better wellbeing for all of the construction workers in New South Wales. When we attended Concord Hospital, we said to Health Infrastructure, you of all people, can't allow someone to die from suicide caused by workplace stress. 
when we are building a hospital to make people better. And to their absolute credit, they said yes. Uh, the five days is just good. Good for everything. Good for myself, good for my mind, good for my family. So, yeah. I found working at Concord Hospital really positive towards my personal life and also just the impacts that I saw it had on the construction workers and subcontractors that I worked with. The driver for me personally is making sure that we send every worker home safe every day. The suicide rates in the construction industry are tragically high and we need to do everything that we can to reduce that rate towards zero. I like having dad there because probably doesn't get to watch our footy games and so bum and yeah there's a good chance of me being in the video games. I think from our study what we found is that rest and recuperation over the weekend is so important for workers, you know, to be more cohesive with their workmates and also to have better relationships with their families and I think that really needs to be valued highly. It's about making people happier and safer at work. We find, and I think the research is finding, that if people are happier in themselves and happier in their home life, then they're safer at work. They're more productive, it's more efficient, we're getting as much done in five days as a project might in six. So all around, it's a win-win for everybody. The more companies that are doing it, the more people get used to it. And that will get built into what we do and how we do it over time. I've got three young boys, and basically for their whole life, I've never really been able to watch a play sport on a Saturday morning. Because I've been at work, so last year was the first year I got to watch my kids play sport every Saturday, which was amazing. I've got three kids. I have them on my heart out. Uh, it's the uh, last thing I want to see before I put my heart out on. It's the reason why I'm here. So, yeah, that's it. So I guess a five-day work week would mean we get to spend a lot of time with him. We know that mental health now is so important and part of construction safety and worker safety. I'd like to think that through this, we can prove that a five-day week is successful. It's not more costly, it is efficient, it's not costing program, and that we can make it the business as usual for the construction industry of the future.